Thank you, Lord. Our God is a great God, isn't he? He's great and greatly to be praised. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Father, we thank you that it is finished. And we are people that abide in your finished work. We also thank you for your tremendous grace towards us today, Father. And we thank you for all that you have done and everything that you are doing today in the midst of us. Indeed, you are the mighty God. We pray now in Jesus' name that you would open up your rich treasure unto us. Continually teach us your ways, O Lord, so that we can walk in your truth. Give us that understanding heart so that we can follow you. We thank you for all that you're doing, for everything that you have done and everything that you are accomplishing in the midst of us. Indeed, you are the mighty God. Help us as we continue to build community tonight, Lord, so that we can make an impact, not only in the cities in which we come from, but also throughout the world. Thank you today for the Holy Spirit. Now think through my mind, speak through my lips, minister through this vessel of clay to your people. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated in the presence of the Lord and in the company of God's saints. It's good to be with you again tonight, and it's good to see all of you who have come and are supporting this series of meetings. Deuteronomy chapter 6, if we'll go there tonight, we will continue as we build community tonight. We have been looking at this whole ideal of community, and we have discovered that a community uh, is a a group of people with common interests and living in a particular area. Community is also an interacting population of various kinds of individuals. A community is a group of people with common characteristics and interests living together within a greater society. A community is two English words, common unity, that we commonly come together and we form a greater bond because we are one together. Community, it's kind of interesting because when God speaks to the community, there are two basic concepts. God speaks to the community, and then God establishes systems to ensure that the community would be safe and solid. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 4, we find this word written, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your, with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And it shall be that when the Lord brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them large, beautiful cities, which you did not build, houses, full of goods which you did not fill, hewed out wells, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, 
When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. You know, today as we look at this text, we've looked at how God establishes not only speaking to the community, hero Israel, God speaks to the community, not so much to the individual this time. And then we found as we looked in our scriptures, we found in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we also discovered in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 16 uh, and Deuteronomy chapter 6 that God establishes in 10, 12 through 13, a religious system, a sacred system to pass on the values to the next generation. Discovered in Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20, that God also establishes governments and judges to pass on order to see that there is a clean and a just distribution without partiality uh, to all of the people of God's abundance and his resource. An economic system that seems to stand over and against debt and a release from debt in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12 and also Deuteronomy 17, but stands also for the ministry to the needs of the poor and the needy inside of the community. Last night, we asked the question, what happened? And we labored in Ezekiel chapter 22. And what we found out that though God sets up this system that's built around him and his law, and he's even sent in prophets to call sacred systems and economic systems and governmental systems to accountability when they don't do God's will. We found out in Ezekiel 22 last night that there was a season in Israel when all systems fail. There are those who study the systems in any culture. And some use the seven systems model. You can put A, B, C, D, E, F, G for the seven systems model. And they believe that there's a system called arts and entertainment, one that's called business, one that's called congregations, one that is direct media, one that is also called education and families and government, the seven systems. And when arts and entertainment, when business and when congregations, when direct media and education, uh, when families and when government are all working together and are healthy, a society is generally healthy. When one of those systems begins to fail, a society can become unstable. And when multiple systems begin to fail, then all of a sudden that society will begin to decline. When the majority of those systems fail, a system will fail itself. It will no longer stand. When arts and entertainment have gotten perverse, business is unjust. Congregations have lost their moral compass. When direct media perpetrates and spreads filth lies and exaggerations when education is no longer ensuring that people are literate and coming into the true knowledge of God when families don't even know that it's happening and don't reinforce the standard of God to the next generation and then when government sanctions and then finances and endorses the same perversions and then punishes anyone that speaks up against it that society will no longer stand. Ezekiel 22, we followed it last night, begin to really look at 
how all systems begin to fail. And if we can look back in, 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 uh, in Exodus, I'm sorry, Ezekiel now, 37, 11, just to start. And then we'll look at how we can begin to fix this last night. We said we could fix it one way as prayer. But in Ezekiel chapter 37, could you go to verse number 11, Ezekiel 37, 11? In Ezekiel 37, we find this word written, uh, this statement given. Ezekiel is given a vision where he's lifted up and let down into a valley that is full of dry bones. Most of you know the narrative because the narrative says that God lets him kind of move over these dry bones, all these structures that are broken. They're dry. The moisture has gone out of them. The Holy Spirit is no longer there. They're dry. They're not only dry and the moisture has gone out, but now they're also very scattered and very many and very dry. God begins to question the prophet, and most of you have recognized that when God is asking questions, he's not looking for information. He knows everything. But could it be that his leading by questions gives us an opportunity to locate where we are? He asks Ezekiel in 37.3, can these bones live? Ezekiel's been with the Lord long enough that he knows, okay, you know everything, Lord. Lord, you know. And he says, prophesy to these bones. And say unto you, you bones live. All of a sudden, suddenly there was a noise and a breath that came in the valley. And all of a sudden, God begins to say, and they will live and flesh will come on. And Ezekiel prophesies. They come together. He prophesies to the wind and they stand up. And then God backs off in verse 11 and he explains to Ezekiel what he just saw. In Ezekiel 37, 11, he says, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They are indeed, say our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. We ourselves are cut off. Says, therefore, God continues prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, O my people, I will open your grave. Somebody yell, I will open your grave. If there's something dead in your life, you're coming out of it. You will come out from your grave. Not only will you open the grave, the dead space, but you'll come out of your grave and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord and I have opened your graves. Oh, my people, and brought you up from the grave. And I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in, and I will, and I will place you in your heartland. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, has spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. He said, man, this picture is the whole of Israel. The community is sick. Your arts and entertainment are sick. Your businesses are sick. Your congregational gatherings are sick. Dry, scattered. No life, no spirit. Your direct media is sick, dry, scattered. No life in it. No spirit. Your education, your families, and your government. 
What they need is a word from the Lord, a prophetic word, a prophet. One of my assignments this year is to see that the church begins to speak with a prophetic voice again. To things that are dry, dead, and look like they're in a grave. Can these bones live? What is God's plan to ensure that the bones live? Back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 now. Because God gives a strategic strategy for making sure that there's a continual of health in the culture. And that is called parents. Everybody say parents. Parents. Here he says, not only should you hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one. And that we should love him with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength. Then he says... The parents, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You be the model. And then he said, then teach them diligently to your children. Being a parent is more than just having babies. Hallelujah, somebody. Teach them diligently to your children. And he says, and talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk in the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Then he said, bind them about your, uh, bind them as signs about your hand. Let them be performed in your works. Let them be frontlets before your eyes. Let them affect your mind. He says, write them on the doorpost of your house and on the gates of of your house. In other words, let them be a model that this standard in this house is the Lord's. In the summertime, we have a lot of family members come over. Not all of our families are in the Lord. Some of our families are suffering from the ills of our culture. But we invite them over so that they can see what wholesome families look like. Some of our families uh, come in and they want to have a merry family union. Some of them bring in family mess. Anybody know anything about family mess? And there's not only family matters, but there's also family mess. And our rule when you come to our house is come with a good attitude and a good appetite. Because we don't put up with mess in our house. We'll put you out. Because our house should have peace inside of it. And inside of our homes, not only should it be a place of peace, but I believe it ought to be a place of light in the community. When I was first forming our family, when Teresa and I was getting married, Reverend John Sanders, who met with us for premarital counseling one time, asked me, he said, now, Scales, what's your house going to be like? And I asked him, what do you mean? He said, is this going to be a missions house? Is it going to be an evangelistic house? Or is it going to be a family retreat? I said, well... Though we have had people come and stay with us periodically, I said, it's not a missions house. I deal with people all the time. I said, though we have witnessed the people in our home and through our home, it's not an evangelistic center. I said, I need my house to be a family retreat because I deal with God's people all the time. And every now and then, even I need a break from God's people. Can I use some adjectives? God's wonderful people. 
God's wonderful, beautiful people. God's wonderful, beautiful, special people. Enough adjectives. And God's wonderful, beautiful, special people. Every now and then, even Jesus had to withdraw and rest a little while. And he's my model for leadership. But I know inside of our house is what's more critical, and that's the Deuteronomy model that we are to teach diligently our children this model. And friends, I believe that one of the failures that we see today through the Lord's church is the failure of parents to teach their children diligently the principles that are here. See, he says, you should teach them when we're in the house. I've raised three, so I don't have kids anymore. My, my sons and daughters are all in their 30s. They love the Lord. They're serving the Lord. They're working in their various vocations in the marketplace, and they worship in the house of the Lord. They hold their faith with their own and with anybody that would challenge their faith. And we start to see now our grandchildren, our grandson and our granddaughter, come up in the ways of the Lord. So though we have had basic teen challenges, we don't have a lot of horror stories. And it's not that I'm some special deal or I did it all right. But the Lord knew in my heart, I wanted to do what Deuteronomy said. Teach it diligently to your children. Now, the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we teach our children diligently? Well, first of all, understand that we have an IOU to the next generation to teach them the truth. And one of the truths that we teach them diligently is where do we come from? And, and I think that Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse number 15, uh, 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 I think that it becomes important that we understand that we teach it diligently, that on the Sabbath day, we make that day holy. We go out and we worship the Lord together, and we go out and we do the things that God has called us to do. And we worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, and we worship him uh, together, and we strain and we begin to move together in the things that God says. And one of the things that he says there is that you shall remember that you were slaves. 5.15. He says, in the land of Egypt, and God brought you out from the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, therefore the Lord thy God, the Lord thy God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. We have to remember that we were enslaved by Pharaoh. And have you ever thought about Pharaoh's narrative? Pharaoh's narrative, Pharaoh is not so much the name as a person as much as is a title. Calling someone a Ramses or calling someone Pharaoh is like calling someone a king or an empire. And one day Pharaoh is struck by fear because he dreams a dream. There's a man named Joseph that gives him an, title, uh, an interpretation of a dream that there's going to be some years of plenty and some years of lean. And out of fear, they devise an economic program. First of all, they demand all of the land from the people, all the grain from the people, all the livestock from the people. And then they uh, impose a tax upon the people in, in, in the Exodus uh, narrative. Joseph is a collaborator with him because he's helping them to do that. And after Pharaoh gets some things, he starts wanting more and more. Pharaoh wants a monopoly, not just something. He wants everything. And see, that's the way Satan is in our life. He just doesn't want something of your life. He wants all of your life. 
and, and he was operating out of fear. So wherever there's a Pharaoh narrative, it's always a narrative of anxiety. It's always a narrative of fear. It's always a narrative of scarcity. Pharaoh was afraid that if he took care of the people or he permitted them to take care of themselves under God's rule, that there wouldn't be enough. So his narrative is always a narrative of scarcity. If we help all these poor people, we won't have enough. It never records that during the years of famine and anybody suffered from hunger in Egypt. But that's what he was afraid of. And all fear brings torment. All fear brings torment. And Pharaoh's narrative was one of anxiety, fear, scarcity, monopoly, and violence. When Israel began to grow, he began to kill the male children alive. And that narrative of anxiety always being concerned. Man, I don't know what's going to happen. Fear being uh, anticipating alarm and danger that was come. Scarcity. We're not going to have enough. Listen, monopoly. I want not something but everything. And then violence killing the men and children alive and being brutal on this people group that he'd invited in. But now they're beginning to grow. That was Pharaoh's narrative. And God says, remember, you were slave and I brought you out of that Pharaoh's narrative. Constantly throughout the Old Testament and the Psalms, there's this little phrase. Remember, I am the Lord God that brought you out of the house of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. He said, man, there was a lot of repetitious information coming from credible people and people in authority that was in your ear. And God said, I brought you out of all of that. And friends, that narrative still goes on today. A narrative of anxiety. That's something you ought to be concerned about all these things. I mean, you have ISIS on one side and Hezbollah on the other and Al-Qaeda on the other. And every time something happens, somebody is concerned about is it terrorism. I'm not saying that we should not be on our watch. But there's just this feeling that something could jump off at any time. There's this anxiety of fear. People don't know who to trust. You need to call the police when you're in trouble. But then people don't trust the police anymore. So there's an anxiety of fear. There's a narrative of scarcity that somehow if we take care of everybody, that everything's going to cave in. When the affordable health care plan came out, everybody said, oh, the country's going to collapse and we're still here. Isn't that amazing? Don't you know that that's just a narrative? I'm not saying whether I'm for it or against it. What I am saying is that sometimes there's a narrative that we're not going to have enough. It's a Pharaoh's narrative. There's a narrative of monopoly. I just don't want everything. I want everything. And then there's this narrative of violence. Pastor John and I were talking about as we drove away today. Uh, we came out of walking to the car. And we heard some geese squawking. And, and I said, man, listen, all those geese. He said, they're all over the place. And my wife said, yeah, in our city, they're all over the place, too. And they walk very slow across the road. Pastor John informed me, he said, if you hit a goose, you can be fined and go to jail here. And he said, isn't it interesting, you'll go to jail for killing a goose. But you can kill a baby in the womb. And nobody is saying anything. Violence in the womb. And friends, I don't know that our state has yet passed laws against geese, but I know one day after a long day at work, and my last appointment was not a good one. I was driving home and I came down Agler Road and this goose walking across the street <laughs> and had traffic stopped. And I was first one up and he came across over in my lane and then he turned around and looked at me. And I said, oh no, not today. 
boom. And he said, oh, this Negro's crazy and took his wings. And I said, don't you try me today, man. It's it the wrong day. Look at your neighbor and say, sometimes you got to know you're a little crazy. <laughs> it was the wrong day. It was the wrong day. For all you environmentalists and nature lovers, forgive me. It's just the wrong day. It was the wrong day. Don't try me. Don't try me today. And friends, yet there's this narrative that comes from Pharaoh, anxiety, fear, scarcity, monopoly, and violence. And God said, I brought you out. And you know what he brings us out? He brings us into a new narrative. He's, he, all that I read in Deuteronomy, the last three times we've been together, you know what God keeps telling us? He says, I'm bringing you, we need to tell it to his children. I'm bringing you into a land of abundance. That's why he keeps saying over and over again, he says in Deuteronomy 6, and then he expands it in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, man, I'm bringing you into a land where you have lands, and it's going to be full of cities that you didn't even build. He says, it's going to be houses full of goods that you didn't even collect. He says, man, it's going to be wells that that was critical in that land where you have desert area, wells that you didn't even build. He said, I'm bringing you into vineyards, man, and, and fruitfulness and olive trees that you didn't even plant. He says, a land where you're going to eat and be full. And then he says, and don't forget and beware. Again, in Deuteronomy 6, 12, he said, I am the Lord God that brought you out of that other narrative. I brought you out of that narrative of anxiety and fear and scarcity and, and, and that narrative of monopoly and violence. And here's the narrative of God. Write down these words. He brought us into a narrative of abundance. That he said, I'm the God of more than enough. I'm more than able to care for you. You know, when they were in Egypt, Pharaoh gave them everything that they had because he had the monopoly. But you know, when he brought them out in the wilderness, God says that the day I bring you out in the wilderness, all of a sudden there was no more garlics and leeks and onions and all of the things Pharaoh was given to him. He began to then let manna run down from heaven. He wanted to let them know, listen, I can take care of you. Would you look at your neighbor and say, teach your children God can take care of them. God can take care of you. That's why he let the manna come down. He let a rock follow them and water came out of a rock. And that rock that followed them, his name was Christ, says 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so he said, I can give you food. I can give you drink. And God brings them out of that narrative of scarcity and fear and anxiety, monopoly and violence. And he says, now you're coming to a narrative of abundance. Listen, that narrative that God brings them into is also a narrative of love. Because God begins to remind them in Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord said, I did not set my love on you, nor did I choose you because you were more in number. 7, 7 of Deuteronomy says, for you were the least of all the people, but because the Lord loves you. Because he would keep his oath that he swore to your father's. The Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Notice he mentions the narrative again. And he redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh. Why is he so repetitious with this? Because God knows faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that other narrative is not only being sounded when you're in Egypt, but they can also still hear that narrative in the wilderness. And why God brings us into the wilderness is to cut off the narrative of Pharaoh. 
The wilderness is where we go through. You see, God's power brings us out of Egypt. But the wilderness gets Egypt out of us. You know why most people don't tithe? Pharaoh's narrative. If you give it away, there won't be enough. And they forget the Lord thy God that brought them out of that land of Egypt and out of that house of bondage. And so Pharaoh's narrative, if you give away that 10th man, listen, 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 you won't have enough. And then they're going to ask you to do offerings on top. And then you surely won't have enough. And that narrative is in it. And God says, you've got to remember the Lord your God. Because that narrative of fear and anxiety, that narrative, man, of scarcity and monopoly and violence is constantly coming in. And that's why God led us all these years through these wilderness to shut that narrative down. Brings us into a narrative of abundance and love. What does love say? We need to teach our children God loves you. And love means I'm always seeking your highest good all the time. That's what love says. I'm always seeking your highest good all the time. I'm always seeking your highest good all the time. I'm always seeking your highest good all the time. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great love chapter, can be summed up like this. Love is always seeking someone's highest good all the time. Not because you're numerous, not because you're mighty, but because I'm always seeking your highest good all the time. I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. His narrative is a narrative of abundance. His narrative is a narrative of love. Listen, his narrative is a narrative of life. Because Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 3, he says, Therefore hear, O Israel, 6, 3 now, he says, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it. Teach this to your children, that it may be well with you. We have taught our children to be confident that God is your life. Sometimes I think I've taught that too well. My oldest son is the most adventurous one in our family. My daughter is caught on the sum of that now. My youngest son is the more cautious one. My youngest son, my oldest son, when I say he's the most adventurous one, he'll try about anything that's legal. When he turned 18, he find out he could actually do para jumping, jump out of a plane in a parachute. He had jump in tandem. Turned 18, left our house. And, I, and he said, I'll be back for the cookout. Where are you going? I'm going parachuting. We said, yeah, he's a kidder also. So we said, yeah, right. Comes back with the pictures. And I said, you jumped out of a good plane with a handkerchief on your back? He's the kind that does bungee jumping. Any bungee jumpers in here? Don't be shy. Jump off a good bridge with a coil on you and hope that you spring back. Just adventurous all the way. And I asked him one time about that. I said, where do you get that streak from? He said, I know I don't get it from mom. Because when I used to take him on adventurous things like the roller coasters and stuff that takes you up and just drops you and flips upside down and all that kind of stuff. She says, I'll watch y'all stuff, y'all. Go ahead. Did you pay the insurance? Yes, I did. Okay. (laughs) 
He said, I get some of that from you. He said, but I'm just curious because you've taught me that Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. And then he quoted it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And God's narrative is not a narrative of fear and scarcity and anxiety and monopoly and violence. But his narrative is a narrative of abundance. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 10. It's a narrative of life. Deuteronomy 7 7. And it's a narrative also of, of love and of life. And God wants it to go well with us all. And we ought to believe that God wants our life to be well. He wants our life to be well. It doesn't have mean that we don't have challenges, but God understands that I'll be with you. And then interesting, even in Psalm 23, when he says, yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't mean that death isn't present. He says, you'll fear no evil because I'm with you. He says, you know, to know me is life. This is life to know the true and living God. And that should be the narrative that we hear, a narrative of abundance, a narrative of love, a narrative of life. Write down this word. It's a narrative of hope. See, when God brings us out of Egypt, he wants us to teach our children that there's abundance. Our God's a God of more than enough, that there's a God of love, that he's always seeking your highest good all the time, that he's a God of life. He came that you might have the sweet life, the life of milk and honey, the abundant life. But he's also a God of hope, no matter how things, how bad things seem to get. Things can get better. And you know what hope is? Expected change. Hope is an expectation for favorable change. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That expectation for favorable change. It's the, it's the anticipation that you can see things that cannot be seen by the physical senses. And see, faith builds a community. And I believe that, that God knows that because faith will help build our community, we need to disrupt and be delivered from Pharaoh's narrative. You see, we were slaves, but God brought us out with a mighty hand. And I believe that that story ought to be told that we had fear, we had scarcity, that we had monopoly and we had violence, but God brought us out. And now this generation needs to know that today we dwell in a brand new context. I believe that families ought to rehearse and they ought to review this narrative all the time. Think about Israel in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, it tells us about what that narrative looked like when they were in Egypt. And I believe that sometime when I look at America and being a believer in America, God has to review where we are. And in Exodus chapter 3, in verse number 7, it says, And the Lord said... I have surely heard the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. They were hearing and experiencing that narrative of anxiety and fear, that narrative of monopoly and violence and anxiety. He said, I've heard the, the, the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry and I've come down of their taskmasters for I know their sorrows. He says, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt. There's that statement again. And to bring them up into a land, a good land. Look at the change in narrative. I'm bringing you from all of that anxiety in verse number seven into a land, a good land, a large land, 
a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of the Canaanite and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites. And, and he says, and, uh, <laughs> and he says, and the Hittites and the Jebusites. He says, now, therefore, behold, the cry of my children have come up to me and I have heard the oppression of the Egyptians that oppressed them and come now. Therefore, I will send to you, Pharaoh, uh, that you may bring my people, my children out of Egypt. See, it's one thing to bring us out of Egypt, but it's another thing to bring Egypt out of us. And look at this narrative we just read, because in any narrative of oppression, when the culture or when the community goes down, God knows that there's multiple players. There's always a Pharaoh who has a title, who has power, who has control. That's Pharaoh. He always has his narrative of fear, anxiety, scarcity, monopoly, and violence. But then there's always some disruptive people. The disruptive people can be seen in the Hebrew women who, when they said, we're going to kill all of the babies, they said, we're going to save the babies alive. And so when the people were coming to kill the babies, the, the midwives would come in and, and they would come in. They would say, now, listen, they say, let's take these babies and save them alive. And many times they would go and they would save the babies alive. When the people come, they would say, wasn't there supposed to be a baby born here? And they would tell them. Listen, these Hebrew women are strong. And before we could even get there and get the baby, the baby was already born alive. And now here it is. And these midwives were there and they were instrumental. Listen, these women, Shepora and then also Pua, they are mentioned in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 15. Their names get in the book along with Moses. Pharaoh's a title. All we get is his title. We really don't know his first and last name. Because when you do something significant, God, there's always has to be some people in the community that are very prophetic. They said, this is a promise of God coming out of this womb. This isn't just protoplasm. This isn't just tissue. This isn't just something to be destroyed. This is a person. Not only a person, but a covenant person. We need to teach our children to value life and tell it to them. And so there's not only Pharaoh in this narrative, but there's always the Hebrew peasants that disrupt the Pharaoh's narrative. And there's always these people that would cry unto the Lord. I cannot maximize enough the need for us to cry out to the Lord for our cities, for our state, for our nation, to cry out to the Lord in prayer. But not only is there the Hebrew uh, peasants and Pharaoh, but there's always Yahweh. Remember that whenever you're in a fight, you're never in it alone. And Yahweh is our covenant God. He is the divine one. But our covenant God in the earth works with God's power and human participation. What we learn in Exodus, it's God's power plus human participation. It's God's power plus human participation. Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh, but Moses, you're not going alone. Tell him I am sent you. Tell him Yahweh the judge. The eternal one, the all-powerful one, since you I'm working with God's power with human participation. There's always a Moses who's a disruptor, a leader, who just won't leave well enough alone. And some of us need to be a little bit more disruptive. Now, being disruptive may not be the most pleasant thing in the world. Because once you become disruptive, they will come and get you. They will come and get you. And when they do that, do not fear. 
Because the Lord stands with you. Our children need to know that sometime you're going to come up against some things that are very oppressive. And not only does God have a narrative of abundance, God has a narrative of love and of hope and of life. But understand that there's still corruption in the world. And in our community, somebody has to stand up and speak up. How do we get our children to stand and pass on this covenant to others? How do we do that? I read a book. My pastor, the youth in our church, is taking a a certificate program at Princeton University called a Certificate in Advanced Leadership Training at the Princeton uh, Theological Seminary. And one of the books that that we have been reading prior to his arriving there is a book by a man named Tim Elmore. Tim Elmore's book, for those of you who are parenting right now, Emerging Adults and Youth, is called Artificial Maturity. Artificial Maturity. Artificial Maturity. And his basic premise is that there's two things wrong with kids. They're growing up too fast and they're growing up too slow. When they're growing up too fast, he says, they're... They're engaged in adult conversations that we delayed until we were 18, 19, and 20 now. They're growing up too fast. They have access to information by an electronic device called a cell phone, an iPhone, an iPad, smartphones, but they don't have to check up whether it's credible or not. I teach classes in our church. People have to write papers in their classes. Every now and then, one of my students, one of my members, uses Wikipedia as a source reference. I don't fail people in church classes. I just tell them, redo. I know modern teachers say, don't use a red pen. I do. And I say, this is not a reliable source because some of the things our children are reading are not reliable. Not historically accurate. And there's even been revisions that have been made. Kids are growing up too fast and they're also growing up too slow because now there's what's called the boomerang effect. I read a book with our youth leadership team called Boomerang. And, and, and it used to be that when a child had roots and he had wings at 18 in America, a child used to look for his own nest. They used to leave home, go to college, business, and they used to also go into the military and they would go out on that flight because they had roots and wings and they would only return for periodic visits. Now this book called Boomerang says kids grow up and they hit 18 and they go out to college. They go out to business. They go out to the military and like a boomerang. <laughs> they come back home. So some people that study these things now say that the new 18 is 27. I heard somebody moan. (laughs) And so the book by Elmore is called Artificial Maturity. And he says his basic premise, children are growing up too slow and they're growing up too fast. Now, Elmore says, and I've adopted this, and Pastor John and I kind of reviewed, what do we do with our children? What do we do? And Elmore says that, 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 he says, listen, authentic maturity depends on the timing 
and the messages that children receive at certain places in their journey, the timing and the messages that they receive at certain places in their journey. And he says, and the leadership of the parents is key to seeing them have authentic maturity. You see, kids mature at different paces, but all children need certain messages at specific times on their way into adulthood uh, for the best version of themselves to become purposeful, meaningful, and pursuing the Christian life. They need certain messages at certain times. Now, he kind of divides the messages and messages that they need to receive between eight and nine years old and need to embrace them by the time they're 12. So from 12, from eight years old to nine years old, these messages need to be enforced. And from 10 to 12, they need to be embraced. They need to be told them. And the first five messages are critical for formation of our children so that they can be confident. The first five messages is that you are loved. Would you look at your neighbor and say, you are loved? And that's a message every child needs to hear that you're loved, that there's somebody who's always seeking your highest good all the time. The second message is that you are unique. Tell them that you're unique. Tell them you are special. Go ahead, tell them. Okay, that's the second message they need to know, that you're unique. Parentheses, you are special, okay? I, I saw some of y'all, y'all saying you real special. I saw that. I, I can see a lot from up here. Okay, so the first message, you are loved, you are unique, uh, and in quote, uh, and colons there, you know, you could put down, or, in, or I'm sorry, in brackets, you can put down special. Next of all, third message, you are gifted. You have gifts. There's something inside of you that the world needs to see. And there's nobody that is born without gifts and without abilities. Third message, you have gifts. Fourth message is critical, you are safe. You know, with all the 9-11, with all the terrorists, with all the 24-hour news, our children many times are suffering from a lot of anxiety disorders. They just believe that things might jump off at any time. Fear, agro, all kind of phobias, agoraphobias, food phobias. I mean, one day drink more water, then you don't know what's in the water, and then breathe more, and then you better get special air, you know. And I mean, after a while, my God, what do you do? You better say... You don't know what to eat, you know, go to Whole Foods and no, it's not really organic, you know, all kind of stuff. You hear all kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> and so what do you do? You better find some scripture. There's a scripture I found that says, Father, your word says, as I serve you, bless my bread, bless my water and take sickness from my midst. I receive this with thanksgiving and with praise. Let it be her nourishment, strength, and health in my bodies. And Mark chapter 16 says, if I take up anything accidentally or even a serpent bites me, it shall not hurt me. I bless it, receive it, and eat it in Jesus' name. But there's this anxiety, and we need to send a message to our kids, you're safe. We let our children, let, we let them know, we're there for you. You're safe. We're not going to let anything jump off on your watch. We need to send a fifth message to them that you're valuable, that there's something that you have to contribute, something that you have to contribute to this family, something you have to contribute to this church and this ministry, something that you have to contribute. And you know that people know when that message is sent that they have something to contribute. And if we make it difficult for them to contribute, they will find someplace else to contribute. So we need to think about barriers that we have put up either intentionally or even suggested or artificially that prevent people from taking the gifts 
and the values they have. So the first five messages between 8 and 9 that need to be embraced between ages 10 and 12, these messages need to be sent and then between 10 and 12, embrace. Because sometimes you can send a message, but it's not embraced. So they need to be reinforced. Teach them diligent to your children, your love, your unique, your gifts, your safe, your valuable. We send those kind of messages. It's incredible what God can do in their lives. Now, when those messages aren't received, you know what happens? In delayed adulthood, People start looking for those messages for the rest of their life. And then they get in unhealthy relationships. They get in unhealthy relationships and somebody tells them that you're unique, you're gifted, I love you. And they're always looking for it in all the wrong places. The first place that message ought to come is in the house. I remember when my daughter was just coming through junior high school, this little boy stood up to her and said, if you'll be my girlfriend, I'll give you a ring. She held out her hand and said, my dad's already gave me three rings. I remember when she was in college, she came home, uh, was home on a break, and she said, Dad, what are you doing? I said, I'm finished up with work. She said, come take me to lunch. I said, where do you want to go? She said, meet me at Champs. So we're sitting in Champs, and we're eating there, and uh, it was called Date Your Daughter. I had date my wife and date my daughter. And so I wanted to teach her what it should feel like when a man takes you out on date. So we're sitting there eating, and we're laughing and giggling, and one of these old church ladies, real religious folk, come by. And they came by, and they saw me sitting up here with this young, attractive, valuable young lady. And you know what religious folk do. Hello, Apostle Scales. How are you today? I said, I'm fine. And she said, and is this Teresa? I said, no, it's my daughter. And she went, oh, oh. My daughter couldn't get home, couldn't wait to get home, say, Mom, let me tell you what happened. She's a woman of God, my daughter is, and she's married a man of God. My son's a man of God, and he's married a woman of God. And my daughter has some signals, and my sons have had a signal in their life that you're loved, you're unique, you're gifted, and you're safe, and you're valuable. But listen, at age 12, once those messages have been sent and have been embraced from age 10 uh, from age 12, once embraced to age 18, the messages must change. And here are some of the other messages because a rite of passage occurs when these emerging adults embrace and receive some new messages. Here's some new messages they also need to receive if they're going to be whole. The next messages that they need to receive is life is difficult. You have faith, but faith will help bring you through the challenges of life. Your faith does not exempt you from the corruption that's in the world. Life is difficult. Sometimes you'll graduate and you'll get the job of your choice, but then you have a Pharaoh as your manager and you're going to have to work your way through it. You will know that you deserve the promotion but they will not be doing merit promotions. They will be doing relational promotions. Has anybody ever experienced that? Where the buddy got the raise, where the buddy got the promotion, though you were doing all the work. 
And friends, we have to give them the message that life is difficult. Second message that they need to hear from 12 to 18. You are not in control. Because coming up as children, they think that they're in control of everything. Why don't you go ahead and lean on your neighbor and tell them you are not in control. Go ahead and tell them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Some husbands and some wives need to tell each other that. Go ahead and tell them. Tell them real good. Now's your chance. Now's your chance. You are not in control. They need to embrace that message. They need to embrace this message. Listen, the third message is critical. Listen, though you are loved, you are unique, you're gifted, you're safe, you're valuable. The third message is you're not that important. Go ahead, lean on your neighbor and tell them you're not that important. Go ahead and tell them, go ahead. They need to know that you're part of humanity. And though you are loved, you are unique, you are gifted, you are safe, you are valuable. Go ahead and tell your neighbor again. You're not that important. You know, to build community so that we can all mature together, we need to embrace this fourth message. You are going to die. Oh, I heard the groan. (laughs) Genesis 3, God said, the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. The first lie told in the Bible, you shall not die. You see, many of us, when we were young, we thought that we were immortal. I thought I was immortal when I was young. I jump off garages. I jumped off the roof of my house one time just because. Just because I thought I was immortal. Now, listen, there's a word mortal and the word immortal. The word Mortal means uh, I can die, I will die, and I'm subject to death. Can die, will die, subject to death, mortal. Immortal means cannot die, will not die, not subject to death. 1 Corinthians 13 says that this mortal can die, will die, subject to death. One day we'll put on immortality. Look at your neighbor and say, but you're not immortal now. And somewhere along my journey, this message come in. You're going to die. I was standing on the edge of a cliff one time with a bunch of guys that just ran and jumped into this quarry. And I ran and got to the edge and said, that voice came. You could die. And I backed off and I said, hey, I'll meet y'all down there. And I went down back down the trail that we walked out. And it seems like, listen, this is serious. In every generation, our children and our youth have to deal with mortal issues. A colleague gets killed in a car crash suddenly. 
somebody gets shot. Sometimes it's a lengthy thing. Somebody has uh, a disease that is terminal. Children get cancer too. It's not pretty. Tumors that come up that cannot be operated on. And there's not an intervention of healing. Sudden conditions. We had a girl in our church that died. She was a sickle cell victim and had an episode and died. And that you're going to die. And, and I think that that message needs to be sent because that says you need to do something in life before you die. You understand? It's not that we have the fear of death, but we need to do something in life so that we understand death is not the end. Sunday morning, we're going to celebrate something called resurrection. The longest chapter in 1 Corinthians is 15 that deals with the whole idea of resurrection life and that there's life after death and I'm going to die unless Jesus comes in my lifetime. If he comes in my lifetime, there'll be a lot of glory because this mortal will put on immortality. This corruption shall put on incorruption. This natural body shall put on a spiritual body. And I believe in his coming and I believe in that sudden change. The more difficult messages to be embraced is that life is difficult. You're not in control. You're not that important. You're going to die. And the final one as I close and Pastor Ray, you can come. Life is not all about you. That message our children need to embrace. Life is not all about you, that you live in a community. And I close with this one because if I understand that life is bigger than me, but it's about community. Friends and my children can become great humanitarians. My children can become, if you will, philanthropists. They will begin to do works and acts of kindness and charity. They begin to understand how to share life, share space. My children have now grown to the extent we have three that that sons and daughters now, that now they've even learned how to share their parents. One of the challenges of being a preacher's kid is that you have to share your parents with everybody. But now there are people that my daughter has discovered that their fathers were dead or absentee and when they get married, they go to Yolanda and they say, listen, I'm getting ready to get married. And can your dad walk me down the aisle and be my dad? Can he stand in? And they go to her out of respect. Because they say, because he's my spiritual dad. I've never asked anyone to call me dad. My children naturally called me dad. I never even taught them how to say dad, but somehow it just came out of them. Never asked anybody to call me a spiritual father or dad. That's not a requirement for relationship with me. That's not it. Many of my relationships are more peer relationships. But some people get to that place. They say, that's who you are to me. And they've come and they've said, I've had to learn how to share. But they've also learned that life is not all about you. wonder if God just said, I'm holy and I'm free from sin. And he never got involved in humanity's life. Wonder if God just said, I'm putting you on that earth. You failed. That's it. You're going to die. 
and it's over for you as human. But you know what God did? The miracle of the incarnation is that God wrapped himself in skin and said, it's not all about me. It's about community. It's about relationship. And where they don't have a model to know how to live, I'm going to wrap myself up in skin and I'm going to have the kenosis, man. I'm going to empty myself, Jesus said, of all this glory. And I'm going to go down among them and I'm going to maintain character and nature and I'm going to walk among them. And he's called the last Adam because he said, I'm going to show you what it would have been like to walk under the government of God before Adam sinned, before there was corruption, before there was rebellion, because they need a model. They need it written down. They need it played out. They need eyewitnesses for this to happen. And then once he finished his work and took death for us and went into the grave for us because it was not all about him. I deserve death, but because it wasn't all about him, he took my sin. Surely he has borne my griefs and carried my sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, I am healed. He was scourged. He was tried. He went to the cross. He died. Joseph of Arimathea and some even imagine a Nicodemus came and got his body, laid it in a borrowed tomb in his grave. A new hewed out tomb that has not even been used. Rode a one and a half to two ton stone downhill and placed it inside of him. They thought he was gone. The Jewish official said, you know what? This blasphemer said when he was alive that he would rise on the third day. And if his body is stolen by his disciples while he's in that tomb, the latter scandal will be worse than the fourth. He says, why don't you appoint some soldiers to go down? The Romans come and stretch a cord around there, uh, which meant do not enter this place. And they stamp a Roman seal that says, if you do, you're going to get the same thing that this guy does. A garrison of about 16 soldiers, four on watch all the time, while the others slept and then they would shift, were placed in a way so that they could guard the ground. It was Saturday. And everything looked like it was lost. Mary was crying. Disciples were scattered. That's because it was Saturday. But I'm telling you what, Sundays are coming. That womb that had held this child, these hands that had nurtured that child of Mary were now ringing, wondering what the outcome was again going to be. That's because it's Saturday. But Sundays are coming. I can imagine devils are slapping high fives and low fives because they say we finally got him. We locked him up. We put him in there. He ain't coming at. That's because it's Saturday. But Sundays are coming. And somewhere late early towards the third day of the week when soldiers are standing there guarding all of a sudden, the word that was spoken began to come alive. The Bible says it's the same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead. 
dwells in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall quicken your mortal body. That's because it's Saturday, but Sundays are coming. The Holy Ghost came and blew that stone away. Picked it up and tossed it. And he came out of that grave because it wasn't all about him. He appeared unto the women and they said, listen, he's not there. It's empty. He appeared unto the, unto the disciples. And they went everywhere and said, he's risen. He is not here. That's because it's not all about us. And we need to rehearse the story over and over again to our children. It would behoove us again to have family meetings around Christmas time and the time of the incarnation and sit down and read the Luke or the Matthew account. Wouldn't that be precious to have your grandkids and all your sons and daughters and say, come on over. We're going to have fruit, cake, and tea. And just open up a Bible and have one of the patriarchs in the family. Just read the old story. Wouldn't it be wonderful during this season of Passover to bring everybody over on Good Friday and read one of the gospel accounts between the, 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 the Last Supper and the glorious resurrection. Wouldn't it be precious? Israel went back to Passover, how God brought them out of the Pharaoh narrative into the land every year at Passover. They're doing it now. Went over that narrative every day because we should not forget that we were under a narrative of scarcity, anxiety, fear, monopoly, and violence. And God has now brought us into a land of abundance, of love, of life, and of hope. We need to pass it on to our kids. And not just put them in some kind of euphoric utopia, but also let's tell them some of the tougher messages of life. But let them know that God's with you. I want to announce that God's with you in the difficult times. I'd like us to pray tonight that we will do what Deuteronomy says. And we will ensure the safety of the community by making sure that we give the right messages at the right time to our children. Father, we want to pass on your narrative of abundance, of life, of hope, and of love. We want to pass on your narrative today, Lord God. That though life may be difficult, though we're not in control, though we're not that important, we're part of humanity and six billion people on the earth that you love. We're going to die unless Jesus comes in our time. Father, that is not all about us, but you intervened and came and become part of our life. And Father, for this, we give you thanksgiving. Father, we know that if we pass this on to our children, then it'll be passed on to our children's children, and we will be better for it in Jesus' name. Now, Father, we thank you that these messages will be embraced and that they will be sounded from one generation to another. We honor you for it and thank you for it now in Jesus' name. Now, tonight as we close, would you look at your neighbor and make this confession to them? Say, God brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He broke Pharaoh's narrative off your life. That narrative is gone. That narrative of anxiety, fear, scarcity, monopoly, and violence. You have a new narrative. One of abundance, love, life, and hope. Tell them you are loved, unique, gifted, safe, and valuable.
valuable. Tell them also, life is difficult. You're not in control. You're not that important. You're going to die. Tell them this, but death is not the end. And tell them life is not all about you. Now affirm this, we're in it together. And if God be for us, who can be against us? In all things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In Jesus' name, give a shout to God. Hallelujah.